best China-African podcast you've ever heard. Broadcasting from the heart of global China-African research, Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Winslow Robertson, joined by my co-host, the brilliant Dr. Nkem Kalu. Today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African Development Jobs and the African Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Duru, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans in the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The forum incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchange among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. This month, we are trying something a little different. We are trying to focus on a single country for all our episodes. No reason particular, we just wanted to give it a shot. And this month's country is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And what better way to kick off such a massive, complicated country by having a massive, complicated podcast? In our blind, power-mad ambition, we have scheduled not one, but two amazing guests, Professor Laura C. and Jacob Kushner. Professor C., formerly of Morehouse, oh, and um, we just had the former president of Spelman, uh, Ms., uh, Dr. Janetta Cole, uh, give a, a talk for the Diaspora African Women's Network yesterday, Professor C., so, you know, Spelman, Morehouse. I just thought you should know, um, formerly of, of Morehouse, and who just started teaching at Colby for the government department. Professor C is perhaps better known for blogging slash tweeting nom de plume, Texas in Africa, which is one of the best blogs about the DRC there is. Author of her dissertation, Authority at Twilight, Civil Society, Social Services in the State in the East Democratic Republic of Congo. She's also super famous for her article, How Not to Write About Africa. And she also did some fantastic stuff about... She is on hand to discuss the role of the foreigner in Congolese history and society. Professor C, what are you researching now, and when will it be published? Will China be involved in any way? And, and by the way, thanks so much for, for having us on. Um, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, I My new project is about um, advocacy organizations in the United States and the ways that they affect U.S. policy in Africa and how the policies that advocates push for when they're adopted, um, how those policies play out on the ground, what the effects are. Um, so... Um, it's a three case, maybe four, depending on what happens between uh, in the next couple of years. But um, I'm looking at the Save by Lord's Resistance Army movement that started with a Uganda focus, but has broadened to a regional focus since, and uh, the case of conflict minerals in Eastern DRC. So um, none of the topics are directly about China, but of course, in in two of those three cases, um, China is really important. I mean, especially with the Save Darfur movement, you know the. Beijing Olympics were something that those activists targeted as a way to get uh, Beijing to put pressure on Khartoum um, to, to ease up on the on the human rights abuses there. Um, and then with the case of conflict minerals, of course, um, China Chinese companies are the only ones buying Congolese minerals um, by and large at the moment with the with the conditions set out by the, the Dodd Frank legislation that um, that affects conflict minerals in, in Congo. So I think that I, I have reason to suspect that as the research goes on. Um, China is going to be a, a really important question that I'm going to have to grapple with. That that's that's really that's really freaking fantastic. I um, 
Yeah, I, I, I was gonna, I was gonna say, yeah, China is probably gonna be involved. Um, you were also uh, in a, at a trip to Taiwan recent, well, recently, a year ago. How did that turn out? And did that give you any kind of grist for the mill for your research? It's a really interesting thing. Um, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has um, decided that. Um, one good way to kind of build goodwill for Taiwan and its um, its place in the world and its relationship with the United States is to take young academics on kind of on a five-star tour of Taiwan. Um, and so uh, the the Taiwanese um, TECO, the Economic and Cultural Office in Atlanta, is... Um, Atlanta? That's surprising. Yeah, there is. I mean, Atlanta is, you know, a major international trade hub. There are actually quite a few consulates. Um, of course, ta the Taiwanese office is not technically a consulate because the United States isn't technically um, recognized Taiwan as, as an independent country. But um, yeah, so they've, they've kind of decided that taking young faculty members from American universities on these really nice tours of, of the island um, is a way to build goodwill. And so um, because Morehouse has a, um, a relationship with, um, with that office in Atlanta, um, they wanted to bring someone from the college on the trip last year, and um, long, long story short, the, the criteria that they laid out, you had to study international affairs, you had to be under a certain age, I was the only one who met the criteria, um, so I got to go, and um, really had, I mean, a fantastic time, it's, you know, mission accomplished for the Taiwanese, I have an incredibly favorable, um, favorable view of their country, and, you know, we got access to a lot of things that um, an ordinary tourist wouldn't get wouldn't get access to you know visits to to different government ministries and with very high ranking officials, um, and lots of you know really just fantastic tours of cultural sites um, and um, you know the I mean they we probably all gained ten pounds in the course of a week with with the meals that they fed us. It was a really really fantastic and fascinating trip, and I think that they knew that I I'm an Africanist, and so um, the our trip leader made a real effort to point out to me every time there was something related to Africa. So I um, learned quite a bit about um, Taiwan's relationship with Burkina Faso, with um, some of its other, um, the other states in Africa with which it has a, a formal diplomatic relationship. It was, it was, I mean, it was interesting on a lot of levels. That, that's, that's amazing. I could, and I probably will spend an entire episode just talking about China, Taiwanese competition, and just different African countries because it is a really, really cool topic. And and I mean, they're going about Taiwan's going about things the right way. It's interesting, right? So I was I was actually in China this spring, and um, you know, of course, you can't go to Beijing now without seeing groups of Africans who are there for educational experiences or for work experiences or to do do trainings with the government and those kinds of things. And and it is a contrast. I mean, I didn't see very many Africans doing those same kinds of things in Taiwan. Um, Beijing is definitely. You know, I mean, the outreach level is very clear, and and that they treat um, Africans who come to their country as, as kind of honored guests. Um, now, of course, there's the, the problems that we're all aware of with with racism and sort of curiosity based um, things that, that are kind of off putting to some of those visitors, but um, for for good reason. But you know, it's 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 quite a contrast, and I think that the Taiwanese, if they if they want to build up those relationships, probably need to follow Beijing's lead um, in in terms of providing those opportunities, bringing people in. Even until the the, the late '80s, I mean, Taiwan actually did a pretty decent job in terms of African outreach. So yeah, I mean, one of the, the well, yeah, one of the interesting things to see was the um, 
the type of, of engagement. So whereas China is very focused on infrastructure projects, you know, it's not um, development in the in the traditional sense. The Taiwanese, their approach to to their allies is much, and their, and their kind of development strategy is much more traditional. But it's also really creative and and kind of high tech approaches to to development. So we, for example, visited one place where they were working on um, solar energy um, and trying to make it scalable for for poor communities. Um, so something that you know, teaching people to maintain the solar panels and 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 all those sorts of things, but to make it where it's accessible and cost-effective way to bring electricity to to parts of the developing world, which I think is is you know much like China. I mean, where the the infrastructure kinds of projects that they are bringing are things that are much needed and and things that that not many other people are doing. I mean, Taiwan is is not pursuing that path, but they are trying all those kinds of things. They're trying to bring that to bear in their in their official development efforts, which um, I think is great. No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Joining her is journalist Jacob Kushner, a freelance journalist and recent graduate from Columbia's journalism school who used to specialize in Latin American issues, but has recently been bitten by the China-Africa bug. He just finished up a grant with the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting, and that research culminated in the ebook China's Congo Plan, What the Economic Superpower Sees in the World's Poorest Nation, which is available on all the major e-reader platforms. I actually bought a copy of this book for my Kindle. I loved it. I um, I read it in two trips to work on on the bus, um, but it's just awesome, and and I I I, I can't recommend it enough. And it's like what three dollars? It's it's economically priced. I, I will say. Um, he also had his research for that book uh, published in the Christian Science Monitor and the Global Post. He's going to talk about how the Chinese operate in the DRC as foreigners. Jacob, just what are they putting in the water at Columbia, and where can I get it? Both you and Hong Shang Huang have been writing Dynamite China Africa stuff, and that is not even mentioning Professor Howard French, who wrote some equally dynamite stuff of, a few years ago. Considering that you just received your MA this year, how did you get into the China Africa game? Um, well, I, I guess I first got interested in um, it through, I, I was in Haiti for a couple of years, and I did a long project about um, mining in Haiti, and, and North American mining companies searching for gold there and whatnot, and, and so, you know, and I was looking at transition to, to perhaps Central or East Africa, and I, you know, if, if you're looking into mining in Africa, uh, you know, Chinese investment is, is certainly something that's going to grab your attention, and so uh, then with the help of, uh, you know, at Columbia University, with the help of Howard French, you mentioned, and some other professors there, including my advisor, Alexander Stile, um, we kind of narrowed in on this, this idea of Congo being a, a fascinating place in particular to focus in on uh, in terms of Chinese investment. Um, but but certainly, yeah, there's, there's, I, I drew on tons of different uh, academics uh, and fellow students. Professor C and Jacob, you've already met each other prior to this podcast. How did that come about? Uh, at a bar in Nairobi. <laughs> <laughs> a couple weeks ago for um, an evaluation design workshop that um, for a project I'm working on and um, who organized that, that meetup? Grant Brook, I guess, um, had organized just kind of an opportunity for a lot of people to get together and um, so yeah, it just happened to meet Jacob there and um, really we had, we talked, we shared a cap because um, we were headed kind of in the same directions home and um, talked a little bit about Congo, but I had no idea that, that he had written the book, and so this is, this is kind of a fun little coincidence. 
And we, yeah, we had been planning to, to meet there. I was trying to meet with uh, Tom Murphy, who's a great uh, writer on, on the subject of aid. Uh, oh. I was meeting him, and he said he was bringing some friends. So, uh, that's... Yeah, I follow that dude on Twitter. But, but yeah, oh, Tom, yeah, Tom Murphy. I, he, he, yeah, he's pre- that's pretty cool. Today's episode will have us discuss foreigners in the DRC and how the Chinese fit in. The DRC has a rather painful history in foreign exploitation of natural resources. Some consider China's engagement with the DRC a break from business as usual. Others consider it as more of the same. We brought these two experts here to explore this topic in more detail. Professor C, can you give us some can you give us some background on what foreigners have been doing in the Democratic Republic of the Congo? Is there any difference in how European and American foreigners operate slash have operated in African ones? Yeah, so I think you have to look back at this in terms of the, the context all the way back to the colonial period. Um, you know, it's, it's a cliche and certainly one that I criticize a lot, but um, European arrival in Congo is, is forever associated with the extraction of natural resources. Um, abuse of Congolese labor, um, all the horrific things that, that went on um, under King Leopold and, and in the, the sort of Congo Free State, Belgian Congo period. Um, then after independence, immediately the Cold War dynamic becomes kind of the defining um, defining relationship between Congolese and, and non-Africans um, in the area. And, and that really, again, you know, he he banned everything outside his political party. Um, you know, no civil society groups kind of allowed to exist other than the, the religious institutions. But even with that, the West kind of kind of turned a blind eye um, to his abuses in in the name of, of his uh, so supposedly anti-communist tendencies. And since the end of the of the Cold War, of course, the relationship has changed. And and the defining aspect um, of of that period. Um, and, and of the relationship with, with outsiders today is definitely one that has to do with aid um, and, and particularly humanitarian aid for, for the crisis in the East, but also just kind of general aid for um, the, the high levels of poverty that we see throughout Congo and, and other sorts of problems in, in the area. Um, as far as whether Westerners or Easterners are seen differently, um, I think... I think that's something that's a little bit too early to tell. Um, you know, the, the, the Chinese, the, the sort of current Chinese engagement has not been going on for very long. I mean, it, we're talking about less than a decade at this point. Um, and certainly perceptions of China vary uh, really considerably across the, the country and, and even within communities. Um, and, and they have changed and evolved over time. And understanding foreigners, there's, there's always a high degree of suspicion. Um, Congo is a place where information networks are not very good in terms of people having access to reliable, um, evidence-based information, but it's also a place where the gossip networks and, and the rumor mill are, are incredibly strong. And um, there, there are a lot of beliefs in conspiracy theories um, about who's up to no good. Um, and you know, rumors that like the United States is behind Rwandan intervention in in Eastern Congo are, are very, very common and very widely believed. Um, but these don't necessarily transfer to to sort of Chinese engagement. Although I think that that there is a lot of suspicion there too. There's there's kind of this attitude of what else do they want? Um, you know, they, they they've made deals for minerals. They're improving infrastructure. But is there some kind of other motive? And, and I think you're always going to have that in a country where you don't have um, great, reliable, investigative journalism, where you don't have a tradition of people being able to 
to necessarily trust the information that they receive. And so they, they do what any of us would do in those circumstances, which is trust the people that they know. Um, and, and that's both a recipe for... I can ask the next question. Um, so how um, could you explain how xenophobia would, I guess, operate in DRC and who suffers the worst of it if it does actually exist? Yeah, it definitely exists. Um, and, and I think that you have to understand how large Congo is, though, and how um, how diverse it is and, and really how separate the different regions of the country are from one, from one another. I mean, for most people, the prospect of traveling from, from one region of the country to another is, is not realistic. And so um, when, when there is xenophobia, it tends to be more limited to, to particular regions. Um, just because travel is, is very, very difficult and very expensive um, to undertake. But So I'll talk about the East, which is the, the part of the country I'm the most familiar with. Um, and there, certainly, the, the strongest prejudices are against um, people who um, speak the Kenya-Rwandan language, which is, which is Rwanda, the Rwandan language. Um, so in the colonial period, the Belgians basically um, forced several, you know, a very large community of, of Hutu peasants um, into the Kivu provinces of eastern Congo um, to work on the on the plantations and the cattle farms there. Um, so, so eastern, so the, the Kivu provinces, particularly north Kivu, is um, incredibly agriculturally um, rich land. The, the soil is volcanic. It can produce three harvests a year, um, and there was a need for a very large labor force, and so the the Belgians moved quite a few Hutus over there. Um, the descendants of those people are known as the Banyarwanda, um, and then there are also some Tutsis of Rwandan origin living in that area. Now, in South Kivu, you have a separate group of people whose ancestors migrated prior to the colonial period, um, and they. Um, live on something called the Oat Plateau, high up in the in, in a mountainous region, um, and name themselves. They they sort of, it's an interesting, it's a really interesting study in sort of imagined communities and, and the social construction. Of, this gets complicated because in the East, it's very common to refer to anybody who speaks Kenya Rwanda as a Tutsi or as a Rwanda phone. Um, and some of these people would say, no, we're not Tutsis, but but that that's kind of the the way that. The prejudices often play out. Um, so these, some of the Banya Malenge um, allied themselves with the Rwandan invading force during the wars um, that backed Laurent Kabia in his uh, attempt to take over the country. And some of the Banya Rwanda did that as well. And long story short, ever since that time, um, there has been, and, and it, the, the prejudice against people of Rwandan origin predates the war. Um, I mean, we had in the early 1990s um, communal conflicts in which thousands of people were killed um, in North Kivu over, over sort of who had the right to the land, the Rwanda phones, or the people who call themselves the autochtones, the, the sons of the soil, the, they'll call themselves the real Congolese. Um, the, since then, people of Rwandan origin who are, who are Congolese citizens um, have faced pretty tremendous uh, prejudice in eastern Congo. Part of that is due to the fact that in, in, in different guises, um, uh, militias, uh, proxy forces, whatever you want to call them, allied armed movements, I think is, is the most neutral term. Um, so we had, during the war, we had the RCD, which split, and the RCD-GOMA kind of became the, the main branch of that. 
Um, after the war, we had the CNDP, um, and now we have the M23. And because some Congolese Tutsis have, have participated in the M23 and other rebellions, um, and because of the longstanding conflicts over, over land rights, over citizenship rights, um, those all, almost all Cong Rwanda from Congolese face a high degree of prejudice, um, of accusations that they aren't really Congolese. Um, now, under the, con the Constitution, the 2006 Constitution, anybody whose ancestors were in Congo um, at the point of independence, so in 1960, are Congolese citizens. So, so for the vast majority of these people, there is no legal question. They, they are definitely Congolese citizens, but they aren't perceived by, by I would say, more than the majority of, of the other population um, as being citizens who are sort of primarily loyal to Congo. Uh, I'm, I'm really quite fascinated um, by that information. Um, I, I need to ruminate on it. <laughs> it's so depressing. It, it is actually quite, because if you think about it, um, there's been a lot of discourse about how, um, you know, Africa's future is the removal of Western entities and Western influences, but there are a lot of other um, societal issues and interpersonal relationships that are systematically problematic in Africa. and they are between the African people and those also need a resolution. And it's not going to be as easy as just moving people out of a place. Um, yeah, that's, I, I, I really, I don't even know what to say. Uh, no, I mean, that have, that have wide disputes and grievances and are just are kind of taking advantage of the state's breakdown to, to wreak havoc. But one of the keys to, to long-term peace there is resolving this issue and, and, you know, kind of doing the very hard work of um, grassroots peace building, of communal reconciliation. Um, in Congo, land rights are tied to citizenship rights. So you can't own land if you're, if you're not a citizen. Um, and, and that has a lot of implications. You know, if, if people don't believe that you're a citizen, they don't believe you should be on the land that you're on. Um, and if, if somebody can't find a way to straighten all that out, to go through the land records, to, um, you know, to, to sort out who's who, because all of this was manipulated by Mobutu. He would give the, the Rwanda phone status. He would take it away. He would make them citizens and let them vote. Then he would, he would take their land away. He would take their citizenship and give their land to his cronies as part of his patronage games. Um, so it's this huge, like, tangled web and mess of who owns what and who has the right to, to do what. And um, that's not something that's very sexy, that, that donors are interested in funding efforts to, to untangle, but, but that is the real key to, to getting a lasting peace. And, you know, the, the very boring and tedious work of, of dealing with the land records, um, of dealing with helping to, to figure out how land gets distributed and, and who gets what is, it's got to happen. Um, if we really, you know, want want a lasting peace in the region. Well, but that's way off topic. But <laughs> no, that 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 that's that that's 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 great. I, I'm actually gonna I'm gonna definitely keep that in the podcast. Jacob, I got the sense from your book that you viewed Chinese engagement with the DRC as more of the same. Is that correct? 
Um, yes and no. I mean, certainly um, some of the mechanisms are quite different. I mean, and, and from what I what I found in Congo, you have people, um, many Chinese expats who are there starting, you know, small businesses, restaurants, uh, doctors' offices. You know, the sorts of uh, small scale entrepreneurs or, or just business people who come there. You know, on not a sort of individual level. <laughs> Um, certainly importers of everything from medicine to furniture. Um, see a lot of those people. Um, and, and But then you also have, of course, the other sort of engagement, which is the government level, or at least large, you know, state-owned company level um, on, on deals, such as the one I studied for this for this, this book, the Sycomines deal. Um, and so there, there is kind of a difference b- between the two. Um, I think what hasn't changed that drastically is that you know, when it comes to big deals like Sikumin's, this infrastructure for minerals deal in Congo, um, the ultimate benefit of that is going to depend on how much $6.5 billion, you know, Chinese deal. And it's going to it's going to depend on how the money is used. And so I think you to decide, you know, to say it differs from, from Western investment, I mean, and really, really, I think the whether or not this, this helps Congo's economy and its people depends on Congo's own leaders. That's not a good thing. Uh, it, it might not be, given the precedents we're seeing in Congo's mining industry, which have been very uh, worry, worrisome. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, uh, so a lot of, you know, a lot of researchers are telling me that, you know, Congo is making strides to become more transparent in its extractive sector, but you still have examples that that, that speak to the contrary. You have this 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 issue where um, recently uh, the, the government mining company Jekamine sold its share secretly in in this, you know, in, in this com- in a company called. Comida SPRL, um, without telling anybody, without telling the IMF, which had a, it was giving lots of loans, half a billion dollars worth of loans to Congo on the condition that, and one of the conditions being that Congo published these contracts, and, and so you have these government ministers and, and, and say, uh, mining company ministers who uh, secretly sold off that share without telling anybody, it, it really makes you concerned about, you know, that sort of thing. Also, you know, the Sycamines deal came with a $350 million signing bonus from the Chinese. It was supposed to go to um, both the, the state mining company company means and the, the government and there are also questions raised by global witness of British uh, accountability NGOs to where uh, 24 million of the, uh, uh, those dollars went that, that seemed to be unaccounted for so really lots of lots of concerns in that area I I was gonna ask about that signing bonus did you really compare the 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 signing bonus with that of the signing bonus of Drew Brees the NFL player <laughs> I, you know, I was trying to find a way to, to connect with uh, this this guy, the head of China, uh, Congo's um, China relations with China, uh, Moise Kanga, and you know, I had heard that he's not a very, you know, just, just hard to like get a really personal conversation with him to really get things out of him. So I, I tried a few different things. I, I looked up, uh, you know, how much NFL players you know were getting in signing bonuses because I was fascinated by you know the idea of such a large signing bonus. It's incredible. I mean, three hundred fifty million dollars is unprecedented. For, for a signing bonus for, for a minerals deal. Uh, but it didn't, uh, yeah, he didn't perhaps know enough about NF, the NFL to, uh, to catch the right. So I guess the question I had was um, slightly different. Do you think that um, institutionally, Congo is making the right sorts of progress for its leadership to be making the right sorts of decision with regards to their economic development and um, and social development because you've I mean you've come down to the conclusion that I think most African scholars come come to the future of Africa is ultimately in the hands of Africans and based on the decisions that African elites make um, and we're starting to see in certain African countries South Africa 
um, Nigeria, um, Egypt's working through their issues, but we're starting to see the, the voter base get their um, elected officials to, to actually begin to address their concerns and issues that matter most to them. How, how is, um, I guess, how is the political development in, in Congo, and are they getting close to being in that sort of a place where um, not just the elites are benefiting, but there are actually um, policies being implemented that would affect and improve the lives of all of the people? Well, I spoke with some opposition party leaders in Congo who, who would would say no, that you know they're very much excluded and, and, and much of society is very much uh, not a part and not a recipient of these benefits. But I mean, if you look at the infrastructure projects that are going on, I mean, certainly people are benefiting from these in, in, in their daily lives, at least in Kinshasa, where these projects are being put in place. I mean, you have you know brand new widened roads um, to the airport in Kinshasa, to uh, yeah, the boulevard downtown, things that are making... Um, Transportation easier, hopefully raising productivity slightly in the long run. Um, a hospital that was just completed uh, as part of this um, Sikumins deal. So I, I mean, I do think that you know investment in infrastructure is, is good for Congo, and and you know China is investing quite a lot of, uh, or these two Chinese state-owned companies are investing quite a lot of money in that. So I, I think that is something that everyone is benefiting from. I guess what I'm referring to is that in addition to that, there is you know the revenues, the taxes that are going to be coming to the Congolese state that will have you know ho- hopefully also be reinvested into such things or, or equally important things in Congo, and that's that's what we're waiting to see, I think. Mm. Oh. Great. Uh, Jacob, your book did a, a wonderful job of demonstrating how different Congolese people view the Chinese, and, you know, there's not one single voice for them. Overall, what are the major camps, and who falls in them? So... It's, it is a little difficult to categorize because there are so many different types. You know, I, I only met uh, you know a few dozen uh, during my time there, if that. But but I, I guess I would say that you have first of all there's, there's a general urban or quasi-urban population that uh, of, of Congolese that patronize Chinese electronic shops. For example, when they buy goods from Chinese importers and medicine from Chinese farmers. Entrepreneurs that that Congolese come into um, you know on a daily basis for things they buy, I would say. Um, and then there are you know the big Chinese state-owned companies and companies in general. And so a lot of Congolese, the way they come into contact with Chinese in their country is that they are employed by the Chinese companies, uh, both you know big and small. Um, you know, so you have some that are. And, and those are kind of split into the formal and informal sector. So, so you have, you know, a, a good number of, uh, some number of uh, Congo, Congolese who are employed in formal, um, often minimum wage jobs by, say, a large Chinese state and construction company to build these roads. But then you also have the informal sector. You have, you know, tens of thousands, uh, or by, by studies, some studies say hundreds of thousands of, of artisanal miners who are, you know, families and communities that are digging for copper ore or all sorts of different minerals and that are then going and selling those to Chinese buyers. And, and I saw that firsthand when I was in the Lubumbashi area in southeast Congo. And and so, yeah, I mean, it's for, for different people. And, and you know, there's, a, there's, a, there's different ways in which they come to kind of with the Chinese, you know, the, kind of a rural urban divide uh, largely was there any differentiation between the different sorts of chinese such as soe employees and individual shopkeepers in terms of how they dealt with the congolese or what they thought about uh congo yeah the truth is i only came across uh 
like three or four um, Chinese who were employed by the state, you know, these state-owned companies because there wasn't a lot of access to them because they seemed to work and live all generally within these complexes, you know. Um, and so I, I got into a couple of those complexes and briefly spoke with a few different um, Chinese employees there, but, but it, was, it was hard to because uh, because they are kind of apart from the other uh, Chinese who seem to be coming there for some time. I mean, you know, you and, and coming there today. So, you know, I met, I met a doctor who had been there 15 years in Lubumbashi, and, you know, he's a member of this you know, local Lubumbashi Chinese community that, you know, includes, you know, people who, you know, import uh, furniture and, and pharmaceuticals and, and people who... Um, uh, and, and Chinese restaurants and Chinese casinos, you have, you really do have like a vibrant uh, of what I saw Chinese community in Lubumbashi, for instance. Um, but I didn't see, even though there are some state-owned uh, companies doing work outside the city, I didn't meet any of them. I didn't get the impression that that they are a part of that community. So I think that's, you know, generally sort of the divide. I would say is, is you know, the the. the sp- All right, on the subject of foreign intervention in the Congo. Mao Zedong was reported to have said, if we can take Congo, we can have all of Africa, and Burundi is the way to the Congo, and when Congo falls, all of Africa will fall. This is in reference to the Chinese were apparently funneling guns and money to Pierre Malule, a Chinese-trained rebel and head of the 1964 Simba Rebellion. Uh, the Chinese were going through their embassy in Burundi, um, at least according to an interpreter who defected from the Chinese embassy in uh, Bujumbara. Not that many people know about it, and I was wondering if either of you have ever heard about that. Yeah. The first I heard of it was when you brought it up. Uh, no, I, I hadn't. Uh, Laura? Yeah, I have. Um, so, yeah, I used to have this kind of strange interest in the um, in the Cold War in Africa and the, the Sino-Soviet split. So. Yeah, and I mean, I think that you have to um, understand the Mulele Rebellion and the Chinese support for that rebellion in the context of the Sino-Soviet split. You know, um, the Simba Rebellion was, was what, like two years after the split? Um, China was very much looking for, they were looking for their kind of signature infrastructure projects to compete with the Aswan Dam. That's how you get the Tanzam Railway um, in Tanzania and Zambia. Um, but they were also looking for ways to, to counter um, Soviet influence in the continents, you know, kind of burgeoning conflicts that, that were happening at that time. And um, Mulele had, as I understand it, had actually approached the Soviets um, for support and had been turned down. Um, and so um, he turned to, to the PRC, and, and they were willing to do it. Um, and he, uh, I mean, Mulele was, it, it's a failed rebellion, but, but he was able to advance really far. He took over Kisangani. Uh, or I guess it wasn't called Kisangani at the time, it was still Stanleyville, but, but he did take over Kisangani for a little while um, and was eventually dislodged, and that you know probably involved quite a high degree of foreign intervention um, because certainly the, the Congolese army was not. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it, um, it it's an instance, I mean, this is the same time period, it, it's not that long after this when uh, Che Guevara shows up uh, down in, um, down in, in uh, kind of Tanganyika, uh, on the, on the eastern, western shore of Lake Tanganyika to help uh, Kabila's rebels uh, who were operative at that time. I mean, the, the Congo was one of the major early battlegrounds in for Cold War influence in Africa. And um, the, the West, I don't, it, it's hard to know, but I, I mean, I think that there's a really interesting book by a guy named Piero Iglesias um, on, on sort of the Cubans and how they saw their mission as separate from what Moscow was doing. And I think that that's something that the U.S. didn't really fully understand at the time, is that um, how the, the division of the communist movement, not just 
on the Sino-Soviet lines, but also within kind of the, the, the Soviet sphere of influence, it was, it was not nearly as coordinated or as unified as, as maybe we thought it was. Um, and you, you had a lot of different uh, countries battling for influence um, and kind of inserting themselves or backing these, these local conflicts um, that, that really probably exacerbated them and made things a lot worse than they were. Because, of course, I mean, the, the, the side effect of the Simba Rebellion and then some of the other rebellions that went on in this period, um, I mean, it caused famine um, in eastern Congo. People, people starved to death. Um, because of the conflict, because of the disruptions, because of the displacements. It, it's a, a, a sort of major factor that that period up until 1965 or so that, that people who are, who are still alive who are around in that period um, have vivid memories of. And, um, you know, the, that they survived, and, but, it, but a lot of people they know did not, is, is, is a key historical uh, memory point. And a lot of times we'll, that's what they'll compare the current situation to, you know, the, or, or things five years ago were, were, were worse than they were back in 1964 wow I, that, that was a fantastically thorough, thorough answer and and i i didn't i i didn't know much uh, uh, about the famine I, I i was i was curious because in terms of historical memory there's a lot of foreign intervention in the congo during the cold war i don't know whether the chinese are seen as a player or there's people who are like they look to the Chinese fondly because, oh, they gave us guns back in 64, or they... I don't know. I mean, it, you... I have never met a committed Mulelist. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I think most of them are dead, uh, honestly. You know, it's... I mean, life expectancy during the during the wars in Congo dropped to the early 40s, and so very few people from that era are still alive, and I, I've never met one who, you know, really kind of speaks of themselves today as a true believer in that revolution. Um, but it's or that that rebellion. Um, I mean, I, I the the thing people talk about when when you ask them about the Cold War and and what effect it had. There, there's it's it's mostly critique of the West and and really of the support for Mobutu, the kind of unquestioning support um, that Mobutu got. And um, for some people, that was a semi positive. Um, you know, it did mean stability. Um, it did mean. Um, that patronage resources were being um, distributed um, pretty well. And I think that that's another aspect of this kind of, that, that maybe parallels this current issue with the contracts, is that there's so much that outsiders aren't allowed to know. Um, and, and the contracts are opaque, and there's all kinds of shenanigans, no, no question going on behind the scenes. But there also are very well-developed sy- systems of, distributing those resources. Now, they're not distributed equitably, they're not distributed fairly, they're not distributed throughout the society to everybody, but for the leaders who are able to secure the benefits from that, um, there are thousands of people um, who benefit from from those resources and from the way that they are you know, stolen from <laughs> from the state. I mean, it's, it's, it's way more complicated than just these kind of guys using the money to enrich themselves. Um, they are doing that, but, but these networks go on and, and they went on during the Cold War. Um, now, if you were outside of um, the the groups that benefited from Mobutu's patronage, um, you know, you look back on his time as, as a nightmare. Or if you are somebody who's like a civil society leader who, who values public engagement, um, you, you don't look back on that as a positive time. But, but people don't really talk much about the the soviets or i mean that some extent the soviets and, and maybe in terms with the like with the Sha, the shaba rebellion in katanga 
Um, but I have never come across anybody who's, when asked about it, has talked about China. Oh. Um, and maybe that's because Mulele, I mean, I don't, I don't know this for sure, but I, I think that the Chinese were not, there wasn't like an overt Chinese presence. No, no, they, 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 they were, they were funneling resources. Right. They, it nobody was, would remember like, seeing the Chinese guy in Kisangani in 1964. No, no, the, the, the whole, I mean, China engaged in Cold War shenanigans, but they did it in a way to deliberately not get caught because they were saying, we don't interfere, although yeah. they, they always interfered. Um, and yeah. so the only reason we know about this, um, and I'm not sure whether we know about it or it's alleged to have happened because I still can't quite figure it out, but basically it was um, a, a defector in the, in the embassy, the Chinese embassy, I, mean, the, the, I, I think it's still the Xinhua consulate in, um, in Burundi, was like, oh yeah, we're funneling guns to Congo, um, but like, if this person didn't talk, nobody would have known about it, so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I, I mean, that's, I think that's fairly known, that's not like a, um, like a secret, or, I, I mean, I think it's, that's, that's fairly widely accepted. Oh, okay. yeah. Um, all right. Do either of you have any closing thoughts before we move on to recommendations? I don't think so. <laughs> all, all, all right. Well, we're, we're no, going. I mean, yeah, I think we covered a lot. <laughs> Great to hear. All right. Well, I'm going to. Uh, uh, I'm going to kick uh, off the the recommendation um, real quick. And it's basically a uh, video interview. Um, It's called FaceTime Interview with Ojukuo Emma, leader of the Nigerian community in Guangzhou, China. And I got it from africansinchina.net, which is a a site run by um, uh, Roberto Castillo, who's researching uh, the Chinese presence in, uh, the uh, African presence in in Guangzhou. And this this guy, uh, Emma, is, is pretty famous. And this is one of the few interviews I've ever seen with him, and it's pretty darn interesting. And I, like, I think I'm pretty sure I first heard about him when um, Evan Osnos, uh, formerly the New Yorker, wrote about the um, Chocolate City in, in Guangzhou, and then this is the first time I, I heard about him. So I've been always looking for interviews, and it's it's one, and and I recommend you you watch it. It's, it's pretty interesting. Anybody else want to do a recommendation? I can do a recommendation. <laughs> Um, I'm still making my way through King Leopold's Ghosts by Adam Hothschild, and I probably butchered his last name, but um, it's a really fascinating read, I think especially for anyone who's remotely interested in Central Africa and the Congo. You see from this book um, essentially what we've talked about today, how complicated the networks and relationships are in that part of Africa, and it gives you just a different perspective, I think, of um, some of the different reasons why Congo is where it's at today. Okay, I'll, I'll make a. I, I can't make just one recommendation, I don't think, so I have to make a few. Please excuse me. It, for, on the Congo side of things, I mean, if you're interested in this and in, in, in looking at infrastructure for minerals deals, please read Johanna Janssen's uh, most you know recent paper on that. It's called Revisiting Sycamines. Um, I, I also have to recommend this piece I, I love by a New Yorker writer Alexis Okiowo, who is, who's writing about Chinese in Zambia and the clashes and coal mines that are there. The piece is called China, Zambia, and, and a clash in a coal mine, and um, I really can't recommend uh, those those two different different things uh, enough. Um, very very fascinating reads, looking at you know Chinese involvement um, in two different countries. So, 
Yeah, so I mean, I'll just add, uh, the, the book that I referenced earlier, um, Piero Glihasis, it's called uh, Conflicting Missions, Havana, Washington, and Africa, 1959 to 1976. Um, so Beijing is not in the title, but but Beijing plays into that story um, in a pretty significant way. And it's it's a fantastic look at sort of, um, not just in Congo, but, but throughout Africa, how um, the limitations of the Cold War meant that the two sides very often misread one another and, and thought that... Um, Actions were much more coordinated than, than they otherwise were. Um, and then another thing, I mean, if you want to get kind of a sense of of that time period, um, Che Guevara's African Diaries are, um, I think it's called like African Dream or something like that. It's it's absolutely fascinating and and kind of hilarious um, in an unintentional way as as Che goes through the process of realizing that the rebels that he's working with are not really committed Marxists, but rather um, opportunists who have taken his aid because he was willing to aid them. Um, and, and it's sort of the story of Che becoming disillusioned. Um, I mean, I could recommend a hundred books on Congo, but um, I I think those are those are some of the ones that that are really interesting. And then something that I haven't read, but I you know randomly met Jacob in Nairobi a few weeks ago, and um, I am really looking forward to reading his book. And I think that it is probably really the the only book out there on on the specific question of sort of modern Chinese engagement in in DRC, and and something definitely worth a read. Oh, I thanks. I, I should actually that, that, thanks for the recommendation. But also, I, I should mention I thought of another book that if, if you can someone can get a hold of. There's a book called um, uh, Tropical Africa, which I reference actually in my book, and it's this this explorer Henry Drummond who went through Africa, and it's it's a short but fascinating fascinating read at how you know, the Western powers that uh, uh, European explorers you know saw Africa and Africans. It's it's not things perhaps that we couldn't guess, but just in a time when people are using the term neo uh, colonial neo imperial to to just describe different Chinese or otherwise activities in Africa, it's really fascinating to go back and look at how um, the European explorers described them, I, I think. It's, I actually found this store in, a, in, uh, in Milwaukee, at the Milwaukee airport, in a used bookstore, antique bookstore. Um, so I don't know if it's really widely available, but if, if you get a hold of Tropical Africa, it's really fascinating to read. Did you say the Milwaukee airport had a used antique bookstore? Yeah, yeah. I, I believe it's called Boswell Books. It's a, it's a Milwaukee uh, book chain, uh, antique book chain. They have one in the airport. So if you're ever stuck in the Milwaukee airport, definitely definitely go look for the bookstore. They have, uh, they, I, they, you know, that's where I found this. I hadn't even heard of it. I came across it there randomly and ended up using it significantly in my, uh, in my book. So. Uh, oh, okay. Um, um, before, before we sign off, um, how do people find you on the interwebs, the internetmetron? How do you have, I mean, w- would you like to share anything? Do you have a website? Do you have a Twitter account? Um, l- let's say, Jacob, let's start with you. Yeah, the best way to uh, stay up to date on what I'm doing is to go to my website at jacobkushner.com. There you can also find my Twitter handle. It's just Jacob Kushner. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you Google the title of my book, China's Congo Plan, I mean, that's that's the bulk of what I've, uh, I've done uh, on this subject. And if you Google it, you'll find links to download it on Amazon Kindle, on the iPad, iPhone, probably any way you can imagine. So um, yeah, China's Congo Plan. Uh, which is also has a home at the Pulitzer Center. It was produced in collaboration with the Pulitzer Center and Crisis Reporting. Great. Uh, Dr. C? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm most active on Twitter, and my handle is at... Um, if you search that or, or just my name, um, you'll find me. And I also am supposed to be blogging at the Duck of Minerva, um, as well as on my own blog. Um, so, you know, maybe now that things are settling down in, in my new job, I'll, I'll have more time to, uh, to engage in that. Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? 
I am on the Twitter sphere um, at the handle NKEM EKALU. Um, and at some point, finally going to make it onto calories and rice. This is. The, no, uh, <laughs> I, some time in the making, but it's coming along. It's it, the tra- the transition is, is there. It, um, tr- it it's gonna happen, and and you will be f- your blogging will be found on my blog, which I can be found in calories and rice, calriesrice.blogspot.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R, and and Dr. Kalu, you've been doing a pretty good job on the Twitter. I've been I've been I've been quite quite impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's an acquired skill. It, it is an acqu- it is an acquired skill. Uh, you know that that is about it for today's episode. We would like to thank um, Jacob and and uh, Professor C for joining us this morning slash evening, um, as well as African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and it's, we're still waiting for acceptance through iTunes. Uh, It'll happen one day, we hope. We would also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song, and thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care.